Today's sermon text comes from Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, the one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord asked, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter. There sat in his shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord appointed a plant and grew it over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm and attacked the plant, and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted, and he wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it is right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. So the Lord said, You cared about the plant, which you did not labor over, and did not grow. It appeared in a night, and perished in a night. But may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals? The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Lord, help us to see just the wonder of your mercy. God, in the midst of so many things in this world that are pulling in our hearts, so many idols that are uh, clamoring to try to take the affection and the worship and the love of our hearts, God, help us to center our lives and to clear all of that out and to see and be amazed at your mercy towards us. Then help us to see clearly the mission that you've sent us on. God, help us to be a people that are, God, a people like you would want, creating a church like you would want, a church that cares about what you care about and not what this world would tell us to care about, not what our nation would tell us to care about, not what our own hearts would tell us to care about, but God, that we would care about what you care about. May our hearts break for the same things that break yours. May may our hearts get excited by the same thing that excites yours. And God, may our hearts express the same kind of love and mercy that we've received from yours. God, we need your help to do this. We cannot do it on our own. And so pray that you would make us a people that remember your mercy and remember your mission. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Welcome to The Grove. My name is Caleb Brazier, and I am one of the pastors here at The Grove, and we are finishing up our sermon series through the book of Jonah. Now, one of the things that marks us here at the church is we're expository preachers. What that means is the majority of time, we're just walking chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through books of the Bible. We want to, in essence, hold a microphone up to God, let him speak to us. We've been traveling through for the last three weeks through this book of Jonah. We'll finish up and we'll get ready to launch in a couple weeks into the books of 1 and 2 Timothy throughout the rest of the year. But today we finish this book in 
Jonah. Now, if, if you're unfamiliar where Jonah is, just look for the collection of names that look like they came out of Star Wars, and Jonah's like right in the middle of that. Habakkuk, Obadiah, uh, Obi-Wan, Jonah. You'll see it right there in that section. So Jonah's in this group of these minor prophets, in this group of 12 minor prophets, and Jonah was a prophet sent by God out of Israel to a Gentile nation, to a, a land outside of Israel. Now, Jonah, interestingly enough, is the only prophet that God calls outside of Israel or to speak to people outside of Judah. So God here sends Jonah out of the land of Israel to Nineveh. And so this is where the book of Jonah begins. So a quick recap before we get into chapter 4. God begins this book by calling Jonah to go and preach a message to these people in Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. It's a very great city, very evil city, what we saw. It was huge. At some point around this time, for 50 years, it was the largest city in the world, historians believe. And it was barbaric, the way in which they would overtake and how they would treat these cities and people that they would conquer. Israel's not excluded in that. Surely Israel, this kind of southern neighbor of Nineveh, received some of that um, uh, tenacity and evil. So Jonah had this deep-seated hatred towards the people in Nineveh. And God calls him and says, Jonah, get up and go to Nineveh. So Jonah hears it. He gets up. He's like, okay, I'm going to go in the exact opposite direction. And he goes down to Joppa, this little port city, gets on a ship and goes over to Tarshish, which is in the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. He wants to get away from where God was calling him to go. And so God says, uh, not so fast, my friend, in the spirit of Lee Corso. And he sends this then a storm into Jonah's ship. And Jonah's ship, as he's going to Tarshish, is about to uh, fall, break apart. And Jonah goes, hey, listen, I'm the reason why this is happening. Throw me into the water. I'll be done with. And you guys, other sailors, can live. So they throw Jonah into the sea. Sure enough, the storm stops, but God says, oh, no, 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 not so fast, my friend. I'm not done with you yet. And God appoints a fish to go and swallow Jonah and take him then to Nineveh. In the midst of that fish, we see Jonah chapter 2. Jonah writes this psalm, this prayer of what seems like repentance, talking about the idolatry that had captured his heart and how he was turning then to follow God again. Jonah 3 then, the fish vomits Jonah onto the shores of Nineveh. Jonah again walks through the city and preaches what has to be the world's worst sermon in history. Right Here's, here's his sermon. He walks around Nineveh, and this is what he says, in 40 days, and yet Nineveh will be demolished. That's the sermon. I guess maybe I need to, to go and reshape how I preached in it. If this is the way that are effective sermons, it's like, no, this was awful. This was his message. Maybe there were other things he said, but Jonah, you can feel the way in which Jonah doesn't want to be here. Right? Jonah's kind of here because he has to be walking forward. It's kind of obligation to obedience. I'll preach the message God sent, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Judgment's coming. You're all going to die. Here's your chance. You can hear the enthusiasm. Jonah's obeying God on the outside, but he doesn't really care on the inside. He hasn't gotten the message yet. In our community group last week, one parent was sharing the story with their child was younger, and he would often stand up and she would tell him, hey, you need to sit down. You need to obey. You need to sit down. You need to stop being crazy. You need to sit down. And her son would go and sit down and would tell her, quote, I'm sitting down because you told me to, but I'm standing up on the inside. And there's a bit where we see Jonah here. He's sitting down and preaching the message because God called him to, but on the inside, he's still in Tarshish. 
He's sailing to Tarshish on the inside, and he goes and preaches this message. But what happens? Well, God uses that. And still the message goes through the whole city, and the city repents. This great city, this evil city, repents and turns to God. It goes all the way up to the king, and the king gives a royal decree to turn back to the Lord. And you may say, well, was it true repentance? They really turn and trust in Jesus or trust and follow and worship God? Well, I think we can say confidently because in the New Testament, this is what Jesus says in Matthew 12, 41. He says, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. Jesus looks back at chapter 3 and goes, hey, they repented. And all the people in Jesus' time that were, de- that were denying him, disobeying him, Jesus says, hey, they're going to rise up the day of judgment, and they're going to condemn you because they repented. So there's revival that breaks out in Nineveh because of Jonah's terrible sermon. And there is a bit of hope there, I find, to see that God uses sometimes Terrible and awful and fumbling words that we have to spark revival through one of the greatest cities in the time. And here's the point that's there within that is that God doesn't need our excellence. God doesn't need your abilities. God doesn't need how awesome you are. He is awesome enough. And one of the ways that he often displays that is by taking our weakness by taking our fumblings through taking our terrible attempts at evangelism, which we're nervous and fumbling over our words, and God takes it and says, the power isn't in how great you are, but in the greatness of the message that's brought to life through the power of my spirit. And in our weakness, God's glory is then made manifest. And we see that here in chapter 3. That gives me hope that as I then am trying to maybe fumble through attempts at evangelism, I come back to know the power isn't in me. The power is in God and his spirit. I heard one person define evangelism this way, that it's two nervous people talking to each other. And as we're sitting there sometimes fumbling, we may feel like, oh, I've got to like nail this. I've got to think through all the apologetics and the worldviews and how they may counter this. And I can come up with like this perfect like ninja. They won't even see Jesus coming. I drop it in and they won't know what to do. And the point that I get from Jonah 3 is like, man, we can preach the worst sermon in the world. But with the power of God's spirit, a whole city can turn back to him. And so this is what we see at the end of chapter 3. The city of Nineveh repents. Now, it seems to me like the book should stop there. We get the exclamation point of Genesis, I mean, of Jonah 3, verse 10. God sees their actions, turned from their evil ways, he relented from their disaster, and he threat that he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. Period. End of story. God's mercy displayed, his mission accomplished. But Jonah doesn't end in chapter 3. We get chapter 4. And it's here that we see, I think, that the book of Jonah isn't primarily about the display of God's mercy. It's primarily about the heart of Jonah and our hearts that's often reflected in Jonah's. So we see then in chapter 4, Jonah's response to all of this. And we see our tendency to fall into the same. So as we look at chapter 4, we see, I think, three things I want us to look through. Here are the three points we'll walk through within chapter 4. We'll see a city. We'll see that in verses 1 through 4. We'll see a plant, verses 5 through 9, and finally a question in verses 10 and 11. A city, a plant, and a question. So Jonah's response to this repentance in chapter 3 right, should be 
You should be excited. Right? This is the thing that most Christians would love to be able to see. Front row seat to revival. Right? One person said revival is what happens when repentance goes viral. And it happened in Nineveh. The whole city turns, and Jonah's got a front row seat. He should be as excited as anybody. But what's his response to this repentance that breaks out in this city in verse 1? It says, Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. Jonah sees what's happening, sees this enemy of Israel. Now turn to repent and worship God. Jonah's response, he's greatly displeased. And he becomes furious. Why? Why would Jonah respond that way? Well, he tells us in verse 2 as he prays to the Lord. Here's his prayer. Look at verse 2. Please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? So Jonah's giving us a glimpse into why he fled to Tarshish. He's saying, this is what I thought. This is what I was saying when I was still in my own country. That's why I fled towards Tarshish in the first place. Why? Because, he says in verse 2, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and the one who relents from sending disaster. How dare you, God, for being gracious? That's Jonah's response. Jonah says, God, I knew your character. I knew it was going to happen. You're calling me to this city. I knew it was going to happen. I didn't want to go. I didn't want to see these people receive mercy, but I knew you would do it because I know who you are. And he quotes here Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, where God appears to Moses on the mountain and gives him, expresses to him his name. And that expression of his name is the God who is abounding in faithful love, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, relents from sending disaster. Jonah just quotes the first half of it. The second half of Exodus 34, 6 and 7 says he's also, though, the God that won't let the unjust, or that won't let the guilty go unpunished. God is still just. His mercy and his justice are not at odds with one another. It's the totality of who he is. But Jonah just quotes the first half of it. He says, God, I know who you are, and I knew that you would do exactly what it is you always do. You show mercy to those who come back to you. You see, Jonah had this kind of posture that said, God, your mercy is for me, but it's not for thee. It's not for them out there. They don't deserve it. They've done too much stuff, not just in the world, but they've done it against your own people, and they don't deserve your mercy. You see, Jonah had different categories of sin based on the people who could deserve God's forgiveness. Jonah, sure, knew that he wasn't perfect, but he was one of God's chosen people. He was a prophet. He'd seen God working in the nation of Israel, and God chose them. They, did, they in, in some ways, deserved his mercy. But Nineveh, there's perhaps not a more undeserving people in the whole world. And Jonah had categories saying, my sin can receive your forgiveness, but theirs shouldn't. They're beyond your grace and your forgiveness. He had different categories, and he was, in his heart, a religious person, not dissimilar from the Pharisees seeing that his sin and their sin were different. Friends, we do the same often as we categorize sin. We're really good at that. We're really good at being able to apply God's forgiveness to our sin, but others, no, 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 they don't deserve it. They deserve condemnation. They deserve uh, frustration and our anger. We have different categories of sin. 
between these great sins and the culture that we might see and what it looks like whenever we yell at our spouse or we cut corners at work or maybe we just fudge a couple things on our tax return to get a little bit of extra money. Those things aren't as big of a deal. The sins out there, those are the bad ones. But God continues to probe here into Jonah. Jonah's saying, God, listen, I'm done with this. And God says, well, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry in verse 4? God asks a question. God is a masterful question asker. We see this throughout the Bible. It's one of the things that stood out to me here in this chapter is the way in which God engages people with questions. He does it with Adam and Eve. When he shows up, he doesn't just, he knows what happened. When he shows up to see them, he asks them questions. Where are you? Why are you hiding? Who told you that you're naked? God knew the answer to all of those, but he's probing. Same thing Jesus does often. Well, who exactly is your neighbor? Jesus answers with questions, and God's doing the same thing here. Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah doesn't respond here at the very beginning as he's looking at the city. Jonah's just like, yeah, I'm, I'm upset. I'm angry enough to die, right? That's his prayer in verse 3. Lord, take my life. I'm done. I'm asking for a divine euthanasia here. Lord, just I'm finished. I don't want to be here anymore. Take my life. That's his prayer. He's at the end of his rope. And God says, it's right for you to be angry. And Jonah doesn't answer, and we move then into the next scene as we see then a plant in verses 5 through 9. So Jonah then leaves the city. We get a new scene here. He leaves the city, and he finds a place east of it. He goes outside of revival. He goes outside of the display of God's mercy, and he goes up and sits, and he makes himself a shelter there. That word shelter is the same word as booth in the Old Testament, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles the nation of Israel would make. Jonah makes one of those here on the east side to sit in its shade and see what would happen to the city. So Jonah's like, okay, I see what's happening here. People are repenting, but I'm getting out of here. I'm going to go get a seat up on the hill and look over, and maybe, maybe God will still send judgment. Maybe, hopefully, this is a false kind of repentance, and God will still smite them like the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, and I'm just going to sit up here in my little booth, get my popcorn, and watch and see what's going to happen to the city. So Jonah positions himself here in verse 5, and look at what God does in verse 6. The Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah, and it provided shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. So it's hot, sun's beating down, it's July in the middle of Disney World, and you're like on hour three waiting for Flight of Passage at Avatar. Jonah's here in the Middle East, and the sun's bearing down. He's under his booth, but God does give him a plant to give him even more shade, and it rescues him from his trouble. And Jonah is greatly pleased with the plant. Isn't that interesting? I think it's interesting, the the word that's used there, and we see the contrast from verse 6 in verse 1. In verse 6, Jonah is greatly pleased with the plant. In verse 1, Jonah is greatly displeased at the repentance of a city. And we're beginning to see this contrast of what is in Jonah's heart and what it is that brings him pleasure, what it is that brings him fury. He's displeased by city salvation, but he's pleased by a plant. So he gets comfortable, he's under the shade. Things are going okay. Verse 7, then dawn comes and God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and the plant withers. Well, the sun begins to ride. Verse 8, God then appoints a scorching east wind and the sun is beating down on Jonah's head so much so that he almost 
fainted. So it's, it's hot. There's now this east wind blowing in, bringing the, uh, the sun, bringing the heat onto Jonah. The sun's beating down on him. He almost faints. And he, again, gets to the point where he says, God, take my life. Just end it. It's better for me to die than to live. I'm done with it. I had hoped maybe you'd still destroy the city, but listen, it's just too far. So Jonah is on an emotional roller coaster here. And I can just imagine being one of Jonah's friends, talking to him on the other side of this, and he's recounting this part of the story. He's like, man, it just, it was hot. There was a plant, and then a worm showed up, and then I just wanted to die. And you're like, you start laughing, and then you realize, oh, he's not laughing. He, he, he's legit. He like really wanted to die. Yeah. Well, Oh, tell me more about how this plant was meaningful to you, Jonah. It sounds like it really meant a lot to you. And you begin to see that there's this emotional roller coaster that Jonah's on. And God again shows up in verse 9 and asks the question Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? He probes. And we see the way in which God is using all of this in order to get something out of Jonah and work something in Jonah. Do you hear this word that popped up a lot in the last few verses, the word appointed? God appointed a plant. God appointed a worm. God appointed an east wind. Just like in verse 1 when God appointed a fish. And we see the way in which God's sovereign hand is over every single detail of this story. Not just for the macro salvation of the greatest city of its time, but in the micro story of one man's heart, God wanted to do something in Jonah. God is in detailed control of his creation. He's not like a clockmaker who just builds a clock, sets it back and stands back and just lets it run. God is still involved in what he has created. He is not distant. He is sovereign over every square inch of this Universe, And not only is he in control of it, but he's using every bit of it both for our good and for his glory. And what we see here in Jonah is that God is using the life of a worm in order to get something in Jonah. He wants to see both in Jonah's comfort and in the circumstances that lead Jonah to die that God stands over every second in Jonah's life as an attempt to use him to accomplish his mission of redemption in the city of Nineveh and also to break his heart free from religion. God was using all of this to try to get something in Jonah. And so Jonah here thought that there were some people who didn't deserve God's mercy, but he failed to understand that there is no one who deserves God's mercy. So God appoints storms and fish and plants and worms and winds and sends them into Jonah's life in order to rescue him and then use him to rescue others. God was wanting to do something in Jonah that Jonah appeared to be uninterested in. Friends, there is often work that God wants to do inside of you that you may be uninterested in. And sometimes it may take storms and worms and sun and east winds for us to begin to see what it is God's showing us, showing us our dependence on him, showing us the beauty of his mercy, working in us and molding us into the image of his son. And God may leave us in those moments of being uncomfortable longer than we'd like to be, but it's not because he doesn't love you. It's precisely because he loves you. 
He is more interested in you understanding his mercy and your mission than he is about your comfort. Jonah still here, Jonah here still isn't getting it. He's still asking God, God, take my life. He wants to die. Here in chapter 4, Jonah is more concerned about his comfort than God's mission. Jonah is angry. He's frustrated. He wants to die because he's lost his shade, and now the sun's beating down. He doesn't care about what God's doing in Nineveh. And again, if we were friends with Jonah, we may go, Jonah, how do you care more about a plant than a city? How do you care more about your comfort than God's mission? What are you doing, Jonah? Stop being an idiot. Open your eyes. But we need to be careful here because we aren't that dissimilar from Jonah. How many times in our lives are we more concerned about our comfort than God's mission? See, God told Jonah, get up and go. Get up, Jonah, go to Nineveh. And God has called each of us to get up and go make disciples of all nations. He's given us a mission. Every follower of Jesus has the exact same call. That's not varsity Christianity. That's not for the special Christians. Those are for every single person that's chosen to follow Jesus. Jesus says, now you've got this mission to go to the ends of the earth and make disciples. And if we aren't careful, we fall into the same kind of comfort seeking as Jonah, and we neglect the mission that God has called us to. We may say, God, I like my stuff. I like my schedule. I like my home. I mean, my neighbors are cool, but if I invite them over for dinner, it's just going to get uncomfortable. It's get weird. I like my kids' sports teams. They're all right, and the parents are nice, but I'm not going to talk to them about Jesus or invite them to church. I don't want to be labeled as a fundamental. I don't want to be the, the dad from Footloose. I don't want to be that guy. I want to be the cool Christian. And friends, I think one of the great barriers to living missionally today is that we can be more concerned about our comfort than we are about God's mission. We don't want to be uncomfortable. We like our comfort and our relationships. We like our comfort where we live and how we live. And we are unwilling sometimes to put that on the line in order to see God's mission go forward. Because what are ways that you find yourself prone to living in comfort rather than living on mission? We aren't much different than Jonah. And Jonah still here at the end of this is angry. And God, again in verse 9, asks him, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Same question, verse 4. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? What's Jonah's response? Does he get it? He's like, no, okay, God, I get it. There's a plant, there's a city. Jonah's response like, you're daggum right. It's okay for me to be mad. It's hot. I had shade, now I don't have it anymore. It is right. I'm angry enough to die. So Jonah still hasn't gotten it. At the end here in verse 9. So God then comes with his final question in verse 10 and 11. We see the city. Jonah's angry. God asks the question in verse 4. And we see the plant. Jonah's still angry. God asks the question again in verse 9. And here, finally, God asks this final question, which is the culmination of the whole book. And the Lord said, Jonah, you cared about the plant, but you didn't labor over it. You didn't grow. It appeared in the night, then it was gone. It was a day-old plant, Jonah. That's the lifespan of it. And you cared about it. And God takes that relationship that Jonah had with the plant. It seemed like it was a relationship. Jonah really cared about this plant. God takes that relationship and contrasts it and says, So Jonah, may I not care about the great city of Nineveh? 
you care about a plant, am I not allowed? Again, you hear the way God just asked the question to get to the very heart of it. Am I not allowed to care about this city, this great city, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish their right from their left? Some scholars believe that means it's talking about children, 120,000 children. People are unable to distinguish between their right from their left. Working on that right now with our four-year-old. She's really proud. The way the shoe slopes is the way we can tell which foot it is. But maybe this is before that. People under four that can't distinguish their right from their left. Some scholars believe that it's talking about the way that Nineveh was so morally corrupt that this is a, a euphemism, an idiom, to describe that they had no kind of categories. They didn't distinguish right from left, good from wrong, bad, evil, none of it. They were just morally corrupt. Regardless, here's what we know. There were a lot of people in the city. And God kind of ends with what seems like comic relief. He's like, John, am I not allowed to care with 120,000 people and all the animals? The cows, the cattle, the cats, well, maybe not the cats, but the other animals. Am I not allowed to care about them? But I think part of what Jonah is hearing here in God is the way in which God's going to redeem not just people, but the entire creation. God has a heart to redeem the world, and the crowning moment of his creation was his people. But God here is saying, Jonah, it's not just the people, it's also the animals. There's a, a whole story of redemption that's going to end in Revelation, in which there is a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth. The lion's going to lie down with the lamb, and we will all then with unveiled face stand before our God, and the people of Nineveh and my creation are a part of that. Am I not allowed to care about that but you, O oh great Jonah, can care about a plant. What's Jonah's response in verse 12? There's no verse 12. It just ends. What a terrible storyteller, right? It's like they wrote movies for DC, comics. Like, what do you, how, do you, how do you not know how to write a better story? We've got to give the resolution. But I think that's the point of chapter 4. And we, scholars believe Jonah writes this book. And I think the reason why it ends here is because it's trying to flip the script. And rather than us standing above Jonah and condemning him and putting him on trial, the question here that God asked to Jonah is the same question that he asked asked to any of his readers, asked to all of us, God tells Jonah, may I not care about all of these people? And what he's implying there to Jonah is he's asking the question to him, Jonah, do you care? You care about the plant, but here's my mission. Here's what I am doing. Do you care about that? And friends, that's the question that the book of Jonah leaves us with. Do you care? Are you gripped by God's salvation and display of mercy and in your life and in your heart so radically that it shifted the way that you view your life and you go, Jesus, I'm now living for you, so I'm going on your mission. This is my purpose now in life, to glorify your name by making disciples. That's what I'm here to do. My job, my family, my hobbies, all of those are important as you've called me to live it out, but they all go underneath this umbrella of glorifying you and making disciples. I want to live on mission for you and everything that I do because I am so gripped by your mercy and called on your mission. This is what I am after. And I think the book of Jonah asked that question for a reason. The book of Jonah is probing not just into the mercy of God displayed for great sinners like the city of Nineveh, but it shifts then to the religious sinner like Jonah, the person that feels like their life is okay. 
The person that goes, you know, my life isn't as bad. I'm not like those Ninevites over there. I'm okay. I go to church every now and then. I I give sometimes at church. I try to do good things. I try not to do bad things. But the radical, like, following Jesus, picking up my cross, caring for him, sharing the gospel with people, all that radical stuff, that's not really me. We kind of want to create this middle category in which there's like the radical people following Jesus, people who disobey him and leave him. We want to create this middle category. But friends, there is no middle category. Jesus says, you want to follow me? Pick up your cross. This isn't for the spiritual elite. This is for anybody that wants to come after me. You want to follow me? Great. I'm sending you on mission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's your mission. If we're saved by Jesus, we've been sent by Jesus. There is no middle category. We can't appropriate the parts of the Bible that we want to apply to our lives. Oh, we are still sinners. Christ died for us. Amen. That's true for me. Jesus said, all, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, come to me because I'm gentle and lowly in heart. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Oh, amen. That one's mine. Pick up your cross. Follow me. Oh, I'll leave that one to the other people. We don't get to pick and choose what parts and what Jesus has said apply to our lives. We take him as our king or we leave him. And the danger is for the religious person, there's a lot of things that can be doing right but have missed that incredible reception of God's mercy and the ability then to follow him and live on mission in a relationship with him. Not just externally trying to do good things but being internally transformed. That's why God wasn't just satisfied that the greatest city in the world returned and repented. No, because he didn't just want Jonah to go through the motions. God still had work work to do in Jonah's life. So we get chapter four because God doesn't just want us to go to church and just sit down, but be standing up on the inside. God wants us to engage in worship and fellowship with him and with other believers and to live our lives on mission for him. And so for us at the end of chapter four, the author, who I believe is Jonah, is giving us then the diagnosis for each of us that are prone into that religious kind of thinking. Let me just do the right things, check the right boxes. And Jonah's going, no, 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 no. It's more than just external conformity. It's about internal transformation. Do you care? Jonah's saying, I didn't. I didn't get it. And hopefully the Lord grabs his heart and Jonah got it. For you, do you care? It ends with that question. It ends a lot like the story of the prodigal son. A great parable that Jesus tells in Luke 15. And often the story of the prodigal, we highlight the prodigal son and the prodigal returning and the father's incredible mercy to the prodigal. We highlight the way in which the son almost couldn't have done worse choices. Like the worst things of the worst thing he does. And Jesus spells it out in incredible detail. But the son then reaches the end of himself and goes back to the father. He's thinking through his uh, apology speech. He's like, okay, God, here, dad, here's what, I, here's what happened. Here's what I'm going to do to make it right, to earn all the money back. He's playing it through in his mind. And when he shows up, the father, Jesus tells us, was looking for him. And when he sees him, the father runs to him. 
embraces him, kisses him, and the son begins his speech, and the father doesn't even give him time to apologize, and it says, bring out the robe, the ring, the stake, the party, this is it. And often, that's the end of the prodigal son for us. We see God's incredible display of mercy and the way in which the father runs with mercy in his eyes to any repentant sinner. But the story of the prodigal doesn't end there because the story of the prodigal isn't meant for the prodigal. You got to go back to the very beginning of Luke 15 and see who was around Jesus at the time. There were Pharisees and scribes that were around Jesus and going, hey, why does he hang out with sinners and with tax collectors? These religious people were going, why is Jesus associating himself with these terrible people? And Jesus says, let me tell you why. He tells three parables with all the same message. Parable of a lost sheep, parable of a lost coin, the parable of a lost son. And they get smaller every time in number. There are 100 sheep. Jesus leaves the 99 to go find the one. Ten coins. Woman leaves the nine she finds to go find the one. Two brothers. The father's waiting for the son to return, and he runs to get him when he returns. And there is a celebration in heaven whenever one sinner comes home. And the prodigal story, and the story of the prodigal son doesn't end with the prodigal returning. It ends then shifting back to the older brother. The older brother hears the celebration, hears what's happening, and listen to his response in Luke 15, 28. Then the older brother became angry and didn't want to go in. Sounds similar? Sounds like Jonah. Jonah was furious, greatly displeased, and didn't want to stay in the city. So he refuses to be where God's mercy is working. The older brother says the same thing. I'm not going in there. He doesn't deserve that. I've never left the father's side, and I never got a goat to celebrate with my friends. And here, he gets the greatest party this household's ever seen. And he squandered your inheritance. And he becomes angry. It doesn't go in. But what happens? The father comes out to him and pleads with him. The story of the prodigal son ends with this dialogue with the father and the older brother, and it ends with a cliffhanger. Why? Because Jesus is trying to show the religious heart, hey, we all need mercy. You don't deserve my grace. That's the whole point. You need, you need to see your blindness. But the religious people like the Pharisee and the scribe are like Jonah or like so many of us are blind to our own blindness because it feels like we're doing the right thing. Jonah was a prophet. Pharisees and the scribes knew the law. The older brother always stayed around the house and did the right thing. But there wasn't this transformed heart. There wasn't obedience out of worship. It was obedience out of obligation trying to earn something. And that stands in stark contrast to God's mercy. See, in the story of Jonah and the story of the prodigal son, we see God's pursuit of worldly sinners. God goes and saves this evil city in Nineveh. And the prodigal, he receives home this terrible son. God's mercy for worldly sinners. But you know what else we see in Jonah and the prodigal son? is God's pursuit for religious sinners. Because in Jonah 4, God doesn't leave Jonah on the hill. God goes to Jonah, still pursuing him and using worms and plants and winds to help him see his need for mercy and the incredible mission that he's called him on to. The same way the father goes out to the older brother, pleading with him. God is pursuing us with his mercy. And Jonah ends with this probing question that he's been setting up the whole time. Jonah, you cared about the plant that you didn't do anything to grow, and it was gone in a day. 
May I not care for an entire city of individuals. 120,000 children, a morally corrupt people, a lot of people, all the animals. Can I not care about them? See, for Jonah, the Ninevites had become an idea, a concept. They were this great big evil city. But God saw them as individuals. 120,000 people, each of the animals. It's a lot easier to hate an idea than it is to hate a person. We as humans are so good at categorizing and labeling people to disregard them, and they become a lot easier to hate. And we all have a tendency to do this in a number of different ways. And we have to make sure that when we see a label, God sees an individual. And we have to make sure not to just lump people into what other category would might be easy for us to just disregard them and see that God has created every person in his image. God's trying to get Jonah, push aside the category and see the individuals in their worth. Jonah, at least see the animals. So may I not care. Friends, do you care? Do you care about the 2.2 billion individuals who have still yet to hear the name of Jesus? Individuals who are made in the image of God, who love their children, who have dreams and aspirations for their life, who know fear and loneliness and anxiety, but who without Jesus are destined to an eternity in hell. And that's just as sad as it would be for any of us. Do you care? There may be people in this room that God is beginning to work in your heart to get up and literally to go to the ends of the earth so that some of these people can hear the name of Jesus. That might be you. And there might be others that go, okay, well, that's not me, so how am I a part of this mission? Well, friends, do you care about the area that we live in, this greater Orlando area? Barna did a research survey in 2017 and found that Orlando is the ninth most unchurched city in America and the sixth most de-churched city in America. Meaning that de-churched being people that used to go to church but for whatever reason just walked away and stopped going. Unchurched being people that don't go to church ever. Top 10 in each category. Friends, listen, you don't have to travel to an unreached people group to be a missionary. In your neighborhoods, in your offices, in your kids' sports teams, if you go on a dance recital and you go and you're staying in the hotel and you go down to get a continental breakfast with the other parents the morning before and you're sitting around, what then are you going to talk about? You're going to talk about how you don't understand how it's a continental breakfast just because there's a cheese Danish? Does that all of a sudden give it the stamp of continental? Are you going to look to be able to love people, displaying God's love, and look for ways, seeing God's called me to be a missionary here in this moment? And so I'm going to take the things I already have in my life and view it through the lens of living missionally. You don't have to go to the ends of the earth. There are people here, thousands of people here, who don't know Jesus. So God's question for us at the end of this, city, at the end of this series is the same question for Jonah. Do you care? You may be asking, well, why should I care? Why should I go? Why should I listen? Well, friends, we should care because of the one who's calling us. We should care because of the one who is sending us on his mission. This one who is calling us and sending us is a prophet, but he's a far greater prophet than Jonah. Has come to display his mercy and send you to accomplish his mission. So here's the very end of Matthew 12, 41, where Jesus says the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. Jesus then adds this. He says, and look, guys, listen, something greater than Jonah is here. 
Jesus was referring to himself. He says, you guys know the story, but listen, someone greater than Jonah is now here. And Jesus is contrasting Jonah's life with his own. And we see Jonah ran from his mission, but Jesus ran towards his. We see Jonah came only because he had to, but Jesus came because he wanted to. Jonah sat outside the city and wished for Nineveh's destruction, but Jesus stood outside Jerusalem and wept and pleaded for her salvation. The only reason Joseph delivered the message to Nineveh was to save his life. He knew if he didn't, God would kill him. But Jesus delivered his message even though he knew it would cost him his own. Jonah was thrown overboard into the sea because of his sin, but Jesus was cast into the sea of God's wrath for our sin. Jonah was taken down into the depths of darkness for three days in the belly of a whale or fish because of his disobedience. Jesus was taken in the darkness of death for three days because of ours. Jonah was more upset about the death of a plant giving him shade than he was about the destruction of people. But Jesus endured the pain of the cross for the joy that was set before him. And friends, Jonah walked out of the mouth of the fish and proclaimed God's message of redemption out of obligation. But Jesus walked out of the mouth of the grave and proclaimed God's message of redemption out of triumph. So why should we live on this mission that God has called us to, to get up and to go make disciples? Because there is now a prophet who is greater than Jonah, who has displayed the riches of God's mercy for you, displayed his love for you and saved you, even though you didn't deserve it, and then sends you to accomplish his mission to extend that mercy to the ends of the earth. Friends, you see, Jonah actually got the words right in chapter 4. He got the right prayer, just the wrong heart. He responds twice in chapter 4, and he says this, so mad at God, here's his prayer, God, take my life. I'm done. Those are the right words. He just misses it because he meant, I just don't want to live anymore. God, take it. I'm done. But friends, for us, what should our response be when we see God's mercy and his kindness displayed in our life? As we see what God, the links that God has gone to, to rescue us, to redeem us, to reconcile us, and to offer us hope and joy and peace. When we look back at the cross, our response is the same as Jonah's. We say, God, take my life. But not meaning, God, I'm done. Meaning, God, I'm ready to begin. I take my life. It's not my own anymore. It's yours We offer our life as a living sacrifice, as our act of spiritual worship. When we see God's kindness displayed for us on the cross, we turn to him and we say, God, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take myself, all of it, and I will be ever only all for thee. Friends, may we never lose the wonder of God's mercy. And may we never forget his call to live on his mission. Let's pray. God, we are amazed at the links in which you go to in order to show your mercy. God, to us to see that you are gentle and lowly in heart. God, help us to be in wonder at your mercy. God, to see that you left the 99 to come find us, to come find me. Now that we would see that love displayed on the cross.
we would see that mercy, and that mercy would lead us then to repentance. That mercy would then push us forward to mission. God, that we wouldn't forget your mercy. God, that we wouldn't forget your mission. God, but help us to live on that mission you've called each of us to, always with an eye on the cross and an eye to the call, as we always are marching home. God, we love you and we thank you for the mercy you've shown us in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.